Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it was just a plan it's 100 acquisition of green beacon no we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer hi i'm brews news editor matt kirkegaard and that's just what we're here to do talk about beer for the first time in 2022. And this week we catch up with Ben Krause, founder of Bridge Road Brewing. As one of the original craft brewers, Ben has been a frequent guest on this podcast over the last 12 years. In many ways, both Bridge Road and Brews News have grown up together, with both businesses shaped by the ever-changing industry in which we operate. When I am asked which breweries in Australia really exemplify the craft beer or indie ethos, Ben and Bridge Road are always in that list which is why it's interesting to watch the way that Bridge Road has grown and evolved over its life. And in this chat, we look at some of the recent initiatives that the business has undertaken. No alcohol beers brewed in-house, a Melbourne-based venue, an employee share scheme. We also talk about some of the perennial favourites of our conversations, transparency, labelling, provenance, and the importance of independence. There's always insight and passion in a conversation with Ben, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Ben Krause, welcome back to Beer is a Conversation. Hey Matt, thanks for having me. We'll have to at some stage go back and actually look at who is our most frequent guest, but you're certainly top five um, over the years, but that also comes from the length of time that you've been you know, in, in and around the industry, um, and you were one of our very, very early guests as well. Nice way of saying I'm getting old, thank you. You are both chronologically younger than me and you look much younger than you should anyway so uh i i I don't think anyone's going to say that but mate the last time we chatted was just after you'd gotten back from your little sojourn in uh austria um and you're back so there's and you've come back to a an industry that is a little bit different from probably the one that you even left but before we even talk about that how come we're hearing about the Bridge Roads uh, Brewers launching a new brand campaign uh, from the advertising websites? Yeah, interesting. The um, We just uh, learnt, launched a campaign based around Beechworth Pale Ale um, and we worked with an um, agency out of Melbourne that we worked on with our, the launch of the Free Time, which was probably what our conversation for our alcohol free beer might have been. I don't think we've even really talked about free time yet. You and I had a very late night conversation in May this year after the uh, AIBAs, but I don't think we've actually caught that on on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, yeah, the, it was a topic of discussion um, when I got back from from Europe as well. Yeah, so we, we'd worked with the, by all means on that and uh, and looking to. Um, I guess expand uh, awareness of Beechworth Pale Ale outside of our bubble in which your listeners, you and myself live, um, and get some more, I guess, recognition of, of that beer and our brand. And we worked with uh, the agency that, that helped us uh, do some good things with free time. So, yeah, we had a, had a bit of a marketing budget this year and we've gone with those guys to spread the word and maybe touch a few 
uh, few people around the country who haven't heard of us before. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit? Because, uh, again, you haven't sent out a media release uh, about the campaign, but it's one of those things that um, just as there's a beer industry uh, site called Brews News, there is a, a number of advertising industry sites where they d- discuss internally advertising campaigns. So uh, that was where I found out about it. Tell us what the, uh, the, the creative insight about the um, campaign is and what the message is and where, and where we'll see it. Well, maybe if, we, if we're targeting right, you might not see it because, as I said, we're trying to reach an audience outside of the, the craft beer bubble. So probably, I mean, I'm sure people who, uh, who use the internet a lot and, uh, and reference craft beer probably get spammed by a few Bridge Road Brewers ads in the last 12 months or hopefully they have been because that's our intention is to, is to generate more awareness of our brand. Um, we spent a bit of uh, cash into some market research. So we, we took a deep dive into um, some craft beer consumers at different levels and people who didn't drink craft beer and uh, did some, some in-depth research into what they thought of our brand, if they'd ever heard of it, um, and just sat and listened. Um, interestingly, or perhaps uninter- uh, unsurprisingly, there were, there were quite a few people who had never heard of Bridge Road Brewers. Um, and I, I totally uh, was prepared for that and assumed that would be the case. Um, and from there, we tried to work out a brand story that matched both uh, how we go about things in real life, um, a genuine campaign um, that, that lines up with our brand and what we do, um, and also something that grabs people's attention and gets them to remember it. So the, the campaign around Beechworth Pale Ale is their quietly confident campaign, um, and it's all about letting the beer do the talking and, uh, and you know, having, having a, a strong brand and, uh, and confidence in what we do. And just, I guess, softly telling that story. Um, and it's a little bit comical as well. We've seen some great ads from you before, but the thing that really stands out for me about that and talking about the change that the industry's seen, you know, I'm, I'm hearing uh, Bridge Road Brewers uh, founder drop words like we had a research budget and we had a marketing budget and we got an agency in, which, you know, it's... Going back to 2005, 2006, um, huge difference there. Like that, that was you know what the, what the big guys did. You know they they researched things. It's it says a lot about the maturity of the industry and and the, the competitiveness. I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. And and I think also there's a you know there's a, a feeling that I personally have is you know like you mentioned before, we've been around for quite some time, um, and it's quite easy to to forget the fact that. Although in our in the world in my world in my bubble you have this assumption that people know who we are and what we stand for and how good our beer is, um, but the reality is that that isn't the case. Um, and and there could be some breweries doing a much better job of telling their story that have been around for five minutes um, that have much better recognition than us. Um, we have we've you know we've been pretty strong on strategic planning over the past ten years and we've stuck to our our model of growth and. Um, I guess this year we've made some bigger steps towards growing things a bit more, made some bigger financial commitments than we have ever before just because of the scale of business now. Um, We're responsible for over 40 staff um, and in order to, you know, continue our growth and not see attrition, um, we we really feel that we need to have something different um, and that was how can we tell our story better and, and generate awareness so we made an investment in that advertising space. You know, we've done 
all the other things ourselves for such a long period of time and done done it pretty well. Um, but how do we reach beyond what we already know and what we already do? And that's where you know that's where you reach out to other people with some expertise outside of the bubble to um, to reach those people as well. There's a couple of things I'll pick up there, but the the, the, the first one is I, I'm a little bit struck by you know when you said that newer breweries are better known or whatever, and it's I've always come at that you know get a lot of people who are planning breweries coming along asking for industry advice and you know they've got their grand vision where they see it going and I just go back and ask them very simple questions you know do you think there are too many breweries you know and and I constantly get them sort of saying well you know like you know the, the US has got this many the Australian market we think can have this many so we're coming in you know at the right time you know if, if it's you know if they think the number that they say is, you know, 600 breweries is the right number for Australia. There's only 500 breweries. We're, you know, we're good to go. And I have to point out to them, it's not a deli system where if you've got the 500th ticket, you're always going to be the 500th brewery. You know, if two more, 200 more breweries come or 300 more and there's 800 in a market you think can only fit 600, the fact that you're the 500th doesn't give you any advantages and you know that that was a a little bit along the lines of what I just heard you saying that you know the fact that you are one of the best known founding craft breweries from the early days of the craft beer revolution back to 2005 you've made great beers you've won a lot of awards in the face of newer breweries coming in with flash budgets launching sexy and exciting you can't just sit back on those laurels yeah, definitely. We need to. Um, so in the in the existing market, we need to to remind people that we're there and show that we're still relevant, um, and and sometimes remind people uh, of our. I guess our brand has has been very progressive over the years. Even though we are an older older brand, we take risks and we we develop and create um, new things, um, but also. The, the, yeah, coming back to that generating awareness amongst those who don't know about us. Generally speaking, people who know about us, generally speaking, not everyone, but would speak pretty highly of our beers and our brand and people who've had that chance to experience, particularly coming to our venue in Beechworth, would have really good things to say about it and probably be a fan. But we do take that that's limited and and we, we have aspirations. We have sales team, um, Brisbane, Sydney, uh, Adelaide, Melbourne, uh, Canberra and locally, so we really need to make sure that um, we're we're continuing to make an impact outside of those people who have a touch point with the brewery, um, and and I guess finding ways to communicate people, whether it be advertising or events or tastings or new beers that that get people to to discover Bridge Road for the first time, they all play a part in in that in that role. Um, craft beer, you know, I've talked about it many times before, is all about what's new and what's different um, often. And we'll see, we'll see a percentage of the market probably going back to, to look at what's not new and different. So go back to old varietals. We'll see, you know, we're seeing some more interest in traditional lagers at the moment. Um, but I think the driving force behind people getting into craft beer in the first place is looking for that new experience. So as you age, it's hard to... Um, be relevant in that space because you're no longer after I would say four years you're probably not very new and different mm. um, and and after 16 years you're probably very old and uh, and not different so we have those challenges but they're also really our strengths we as you mentioned before 
there aren't many founder breweries um, with the story that we have, um, with the same uh, way of business. Um, we, we believe we're pretty authentic and transparent. Um, when we do things, we tell people about it. Um, we, we're making, making those decisions. We hope um, from the right place when we do it um, and, and we engage with, with our consumers quite a lot along the way. Because you, you say um, it's an experience, but when you look at, you know, maybe craft beer has penetrated 10% of the market and that includes some of the, you know, the, the, fairly, you know, the little creatures and beers like that, um, or so indie beer is 10% of the market, craft beer is probably a little bit bigger. But the percentage of the beer bubble, the craft beer bubble, that wants something constantly new and different, and we're seeing you know, the new product development cycles from small breweries just being overdrive compared to what they were, um, you know, five, six, seven, ten years ago. Um, how hard is it to be a brand? You know, does Bridge Road, um, Bridge Road's one of the breweries that still has a significant core range, as you always have. How do you maintain that and find a market for that and find you get your sales guys getting that on the shelf whilst also having the constant... NPD cycle for, for the new and interesting and crazy and, you know, attention grabbing? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, you know, we, we produce a, a good amount of volume and, and we, we are one of, as you point out, we are one of the, the few craft brewers that has not only a core range but a particularly large core mm. range of beers. Um, and we also, we, we currently have an IPA release every two months and a uh, sour beer release every month in between that. So, that's a new release pretty much every month. And we also um, sporadically release a barrel age for a Mayday Hills release as well. Um, so I guess that's how we navigate it. It's, it's also, you know, part of interest for ourselves is to continue to explore and learn through those new beer styles, um, something that's a bit more cutting edge. We're, we, we always find when we do things for better or worse, um, if we do one-offs, we learn something. Um, it might be what not to do or a new way of doing something in our core range um, and we're, we're better for it as a, as a brewer of core beers when we're being progressive in those other styles. So, yeah, and the, our, our sales team have a whole range of customers that, um, you know, on-premise customers might be after some core, um, whereas we might have some, some takeaway bottle shops that really only interested in our limited release beers. So it, it's a balance of trying to to make sure we can satisfy as many customers as possible. Um, but, you know, we, we do feel we're, we're a brand, um, a small brand, but we do feel we're a small brand that can still have national reach and provide a core range um, to those in the in the bubble and, and also provide new experiences with our core range to those um, outside of the bubble as well. Do you ever reflect back on, you know, in 2005, um, there would have only been 80 breweries nationally, maybe, when, when you launched? I don't know what the stats would be, yeah, but I don't, I don't even say that would be a stretch. Okay, yeah, um, quite, quite possibly. But, you know, when the brewers who are getting started then were still trying to create a market and an awareness of what craft beer was, um, the change in the marketing expectation, the, the, the change in the core range expectation, even the, what sits in a core range is vastly different now. You know, when you launched the brewery, were you prepared for the rate of change that you're going to have to follow 
or is this something that you've just had to you know keep fluid and dynamic um or, and, and even learn to be more fluid and dynamic than than you were when you started oh it's when we started it was it was really just core so but fast forward a few years not too many we, we were quite prolific in our releases of beers we were releasing over 50 beers a year mm-hmm. not just all in the, the difference was many of them were only in keg or it was a one-off for something um you remember we ran our bar series yep. we also ran a restaurant series you know that bar series was probably one of the first um times where a craft brewery collaborated with venues now it's normal um and we did it as a whole program so we had a release of those plus all the limited release so if anything we've actually scaled back the the release numbers of beers we have due to our distribution um and that need to have a the 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 need or the the desire to have a core range of beers um and particularly you know to have a have a core product which is beachworth pale which we we want to lead our um i guess the suite of core beers and 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 also be something that we're just as proud of as our next hazy release or whatever we're we're coming out with um in the sour range or the barrel age age range so yeah i can see that fast-paced market and i'm very aware of it and i think there's some guys doing an amazing job of it and they're probably their businesses are very successful as a result on that fast pace um new new release uh every week or every couple of weeks um but i almost feel like we've we've probably been through that cycle and decided not to continue down that path um and i think you know as a business has grown we're probably a little bit more cumbersome in in releases um, so cumbersome in terms of um, not in a bad way. We do a better job when we release a beer, so we consider it more. Um, we, we think about how we're going to sell it, you know, how we're going to make it, and also how we're going to present that beer from a marketing angle. We've got some, I guess, uh, a, a bigger team in terms of how we look at our marketing, um, some more influences. Whereas before when it was just me at the head of the chain making all decisions, I was making a decision on the beer, um the label and like it was all just one here's what we're doing these are the things and yep. now we have a team of people coming in with their different angles so that means you need time to check um ideas uh you know review labels uh take out the typos that i would otherwise have left <laughs> in there and have a new label or a new can printed um new tap badge all those sorts of things and how about innovation because you know the, the number of times I, I can think of over the last 17 years, the Bridge Road is, if not the first to do something, certainly the first that I've been aware of or the first to do it at, at scale. Um, you know, it was some of the information panels on your cans, it was QR codes, uh, but, but even, were, were you the first in Australia to do a advent calendar or you know, a beer advent calendar? Bridge Road failing to capitalise on being the first at doing things many times. We, we, we don't have that. We didn't produce the first IPA in Australia, but we, we had the longest, um, longest continually produced IPA in the country, which was Bling IPA. Um, there might have been two more IPAs in the market. Um, let's say proper, you know, proper hoppy US style IPAs um, and others have come and gone in the past. Yeah. So, we, we've been able to do to be quite nimble and do things first. Um, maybe, maybe it's a bit of a trait that I have that I could have probably thought about executing some of those things a bit better or taken them further. But I don't think you know that any of those things has been detrimental. So, 
I'm pretty sure we were the first to do that collaborate national collaboration bar series that mm. we did. Um, we certainly were, I think we were the first brewery in Australia to invite other breweries to our site for a festival, which is commonplace now, which was high, the High Country Hop. The first iteration of that was probably the first time a brewery said, hey, I'd say I'd been to festivals in, in Europe where I was a guest as Bridge Road Brewers in Italy and, in, and also in America. And it's like, oh, we don't do that in Australia. I'm going to come and do that that here. Um, yeah, so we've been lucky to be um, first at a few things. Um, be good if we're the best at more things. <laughs> oh, you, you can own, you know, that, that, owning that is the way to change it. Even then, it's interesting because you still acknowledge that it wasn't necessarily an original idea all the time, but you were just the first in Australia to do it. But that actually brings me to my question, is it, whether you're the first to do it in Australia or the first to do it anywhere, which is much harder, there's zero barrier to anyone else doing anything. And, and, and we see it so, so much now that as soon as one brewery does a thing, if it works, everybody um, is, is out doing it. And, and, and we still see it over and over again. And, you know, how hard is it then to stay ahead of the market or stay, you know, innovating well um, when you don't get the clear space to actually execute that for long term or really capitalize on on on, on your um, innovation. Yeah, I think I think the the learning from that, not that I've learned the lesson yet, is to if you have something that's innovative, is maybe to to really think it out further and rather than just launch it and have it and say, okay, what's the end game with this innovation and how are we going to really make the most noise about the fact that we've got it and capitalize on that market before everyone catches up. A really good example from us was Little Bling. Um, so a small IPA, little IPA, however you cut it. The, I th- so at the time there was Rogers, which isn't a, an IPA, and Small Ale from Colonial, and I'd seen both those beers. And then we did Little Bling, which was, you know, siblings in, in beer ranges that's now yeah. commonplace. Um, and, and that was, you know, probably the first sibling range. We had Little Bling Bling and Bling 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 was the, <laughs> the range we did. I don't, I don't know if that's worked well anywhere in the market. People have done it, but I don't know how well it works. Um, other breweries do the same, take a, a well-known beer, um, reduce the alcohol. And we're seeing it in the non-alc category mm. a lot. Um, yeah, so I think maybe the learning from that is to, okay, if we're going to innovate, let's go all in and, and put more resource into it and then make sure we get more back from it. Um, you know, our and and that's probably where we find ourselves with our alcohol free. If you know, I had deeper products, we probably uh, deeper deeper products, deeper pockets. If I had more money, um, we probably could have gone further quicker with that beer. Um, you know, and that's something we have to think about. How much do we invest? That beer is, or uh, well, that non-alc beer is really performing extremely well in the market, and we haven't yet given it the attention it deserves nor the attention that people who specialise in those products give their products. So, um, you know, that's probably something where one of the few independent craft breweries in Australia actually making their own non-alc beer at scale. You know, we're distributing that. that, that that's something that I do want to come back to because sort of, that's always been the thing that you said. Anything that has the Bridge Road name will be made by Bridge Road. And with an alcohol-free beer, that has some technical challenges. But... The, the, the thing I wanted to pick up on from the innovation thing is we do see not only, you know, as soon as something succeeds, everybody does it, but then also um, there is a sameness about the industry. You know, when there are 580 physical breweries in the country 
and 400 of them are doing pretty much the same thing and there's a lot of overlap. Does that hurt the industry? Does it sort of, you know, make it hard on everybody? You know, should more brewers be concentrating on staying in their own lane and working out what their own distinct thing is? Or should, you know, once hazy IPAs, uh, you know, are commercially successful, should everybody just launch their own version of the hazy IPA? Yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's really easy, firstly, to think everyone is doing something because um, we're in our bubble once again and I'm sure the, the same challenges exist in many other industries. But one thing that you learn quickly is there's no unique idea and it's not that, oh, Bridge Road was first and everyone else copied. There, there's probably, given the number, the, the innovation around craft brewing and the number of people, people actively seeking to innovate, there's probably five of us having the same idea in the same week. And you know when you go, you're about to launch a beer with a certain ingredient that the next day you're going to see, you know, an, another one come out. Well, I tell everybody, never put first anything into a media release because it's just going to be picked apart. But, it, but even allowing for that, you know, say five people have the same idea um, at the same time. We talked about it last week with the uh, better beer, um, even the can design. Like it designs are, are all riffing on something else. But... As soon as something is in the marketplace, whether once or five times, and it succeeds, suddenly that is 50 and then 70 and then 100 um, as other people want to get a little bit of the, the, the magic um, from that product. Yeah, and, but I, I think the, the way it's, it tends to work itself, it, or will it will hopefully work itself out, is I think uh, breweries need to decide for themselves and it's not up for me, for me to tell them, you know, what they should do. But, okay... Um, I've got a, a brew pub with a tap room. Um, of course, I'm going to do hazies if, you know, I know they're going to sell and every second person that walks in the door will drink one pint <laughs> each of the three hazies that we have on, you know, because that's what that's what people are into. And that's not too many hazies. The problem might happen when um, when you're trying to do wholesale distribution and and you're going in with yet another hazy IPA when the... The, the purchasing manager has just seen 150 the week before and it's the last thing he wants to see. So I think learning about um, when is enough enough in the market and where, you know, from a business perspective, what's my market, you know? Is my market to try sell Hazy IPA from Beechworth in Brisbane or should I just be say, selling Hazy IPA from my brew pub in Beechworth? Mm. You know, is, are they the questions I have to ask myself? The biggest challenge for the industry that I see is how we go about as an industry um, pricing our products um, because there's huge competition and everyone has their own motivations for business and that will determine uh, what their price point is given that the market is so competitive. You know, they, we, as far as I can see, there's no shortage of craft beer. There's a shortage of us in a bike dealership today and the bike owner was having a discussion with his supplier of the globe's biggest bike components company that he can't get brake pads for bikes for three months. And he said, well, wh how, what am I supposed to do for business when my customers need their bike serviced and they've got no brake pads? Mm. How, what's going to happen? And I, well, I couldn't handle the conversation. I'm, like, I'm out, I'm going, I can't deal with, because uh, there's no good answer to that. You know, there's a guy with a small business and a global company. Um, so, you know, when we, we look at ourselves as a business, there's, there's enough IPA in the market. What's your motivation for business? Um, 
often, um, you know, I, I get down on the industry for its pricing strategies. Often we see um, price as a marketing tool. Um, so marketing budget uh, rather than what we might be doing is spending it on an agency to, to market our products. Others might choose to, to um, discount their beer and sell it at cost or at a loss um, as their marketing budget. And I think that's something that we're, as an industry brings the whole industry down from the inside. Um, from competition, you know, from there being 800 and their map there should be 600 or maybe there's a thousand, but it, I don't think it's the number. It's, it's understanding um, where you need your business to be and what's profitable. But, you know, many businesses might not be motivated by profit. They might be motivated by exit strategy and therefore um, their price is going to tumble and the, you know, their, you know, they're not saying the motivation's in the in the wrong place. They're there to make money, but their motivation might not be about the, you know, the the longevity of the industry or the success of the industry. It's about that exit strategy for the business, and therefore the kegs of this price because we'll get it on in all these places, um, and then others feel feel the need to compete with that pricing, even though it's it's harmful to their own business well and then that's one of the things that uh, we, we always come back to in 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 our chats is everybody has to compete with the worst actors in an industry and worst actors is a highly judgmental term that doesn't necessarily have to be that but whether it's you know a business as you said that is willing to that's motivated to heavily discount its keg prices to get volume with a view to selling um a, a brewery that wants to make the best quality beer that it can and have a sustainable business for it and its staff can't price match on, on that, but they're still competing in the same marketplace. And I would assume they're the, probably the businesses you have most of your conversations with, the latter, but I would say they're probably in the minority uh, in the industry at the moment. I'm going through the process at the moment where I'm answering some questions for somebody overseas who wanted to, you know, ask me some pointed questions about the Australian market and what I thought. And, you know, the early days of craft beer were often referred to as a craft beer revolution. And a revolution is often against something as much as it's for something. And the early participants in the craft beer industry were the people who were passionate about being against something. It's interesting to hear that you don't think that we're at that stage anymore, that maybe the people who are getting into it for that reason are outnumbered by the people who see it as a, a great financial business. I don't know if, if, if my assumption is correct, but, but you know, I, if I look at pricing, often the pricing strategies, then that has to be my, my assumption around why people would be pricing beer at, at cost or below cost. Um, or they don't understand the cost of beer. It's always something that I encourage people to do is actually understand the cost of business and, and the cost of making a keg of beer, paying someone to sell it, sending it somewhere, picking up the empty, washing it, all those things um, and all those people and all their holidays and their sick leave. And, um, you know, now we have to take into account pandemics and, and shortages and, uh, and market research um, and all those things. So, yeah, I, I have seen the, the industry become more sophisticated and, and more competitive and more professional. You know, I've talked about it before, about you know, before it was okay to be a 25-year-old guy who wanted to make beer and um, go out and represent themselves and come up with their own marketing and, and get someone to punch out a cheap label and, you know, do what you can. And there's still room for those people in the industry. I you think, think there's still... 
there's still some really great producers um, that are successful with low budgets. Um, I would argue that they are successful because they're extremely passionate and their products show that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, whether their personality shows it and they're intrinsically part of the brand or that combined with their products um, back up their passion as well. Um, but the majority, um, I'm not saying that people, the, the majority of startups aren't passionate about the beer they make. They truly would understand that they have to make amazing beer. But I just think motivations perhaps lie elsewhere compared to the, the motivations you mentioned before. So the motivations around providing, you know, interesting uh, beer flavours and beer experiences in a, in a world that, or in a country that didn't really have that at all um, as was early in the industry. Now it is there. So why else, are, you know, what's the motivation for people to get in the market? And it could be um, before this conversation, we talked about um, so an article I read on the south coast of New South Wales. Mm. There's a really good example of uh, being travelling there since I was a kid um, and, and seeing it, you know, I guess uh, take a longer time to to have craft beer available. I remember my trips going, uh, eventually there was little creatures available in pint uh, bottles at the bottle shop where I used to holiday um, that switched over to crankshaft because South Coast has a really strong yep. um, uh, strong drive from Canberra and um, the you know the Benspoke guys uh, do a great job of their beer and also their distribution and now there's uh, there's local craft breweries on the south coast you know when when it wasn't that long ago it was just pubs and clubs and whatever big brewery you know was allowed to put their signage on the front and and you know get the golden handcuffs on the venue. Um, so, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that those venues, sure, they want to make a business and be successful and, and be profitable and, um, make money from what they do, but they're probably pretty passionate about bringing something local and new and, Mm. and maybe their motivation isn't, um, about, Hey, let's offer something that isn't available in terms of let's offer craft beer because there's none available. Their, their motivation might be, Hey, there's no local craft beer. It comes from Canberra or some bloke from Beechworth trying to send his beer over here. Let's make something of our own. So maybe mm-hmm. they have something else to not, not an all out revolution, but something to, to sort of counter or go against or have a reason for being. But say you've got a, like a, a small little regional brewery punching out 600 liter batches, passionate, just really loving what they're doing, wanting to make the best beer that they can. And then you've got a, a brand um, that is has the ability to go to one of the most well-resourced breweries in the country, um, brew at scale, make a beer that quality-wise to, to a consumer, to, an uneducated, to a largely uneducated consumer palate is very, very similar. And there's a $25, $30 a difference, you know, carton price on it. How did those two brands compete in the market when there's no requirement to disclose that, well, there is no, you know, brewery at X place? Is that one of the reasons that you've been so vocal over the years for um, labelling? That if you are going to make a beer that has certain provenance um, elements to it that make it more expensive, that you should be entitled to claim those to justify the higher price? Yeah, obviously, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of a model that that would you know um, require people to to disclose production sites, um, ownership, all those things. It's something I've been passionate about for a while. I guess it's easy for me to argue because I've got a vested interest in a in a brewery that do make their own beer um, and make it on site, and have also 
know the cost of doing that, um, you know, and the challenges of, of doing things yourself. Um, I guess, you know, if you, the, your question was how to, how to, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? If it, so if I'm on the side of the, the small brewer that makes their own beer competing against another brand that has a contract made without being too shouty about it, but, um, I guess communicate the, don't, don't be a politician and talk about what the other guy isn't doing. Talk about what you do and what you are going to do and what you stand for. Um, you know, the things that politicians rarely do. They're, you know, <laughs> talk about what the other guys have done wrong and rather than what they, you know, what they can do and what they will do and what they do well. Um, you know, an ideal w- w- world for me, um, consumers are definitely 100% don't even start me on the argument that they're not interested in provenance. You know, if you if if the blindingly obvious wasn't obvious, then COVID has made it obvious. People care about what's in what they eat and drink and buy and do. Sometimes that you know, they're less interested. And in, and even when we do know, we we purchase things that don't align with our ideals, or or we don't care. But but in the craft beer space, people that are caring about flavour and wanting to experience something new, you know. You could you can easily say that that market, if I had to generalise, care about who made what they bought, where it was made, what went into it, all those things. There's 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 no way that any other argument stands up. I've heard it all before. And I refer everyone back to one of the very very first podcasts we did, where I had uh, you and Adam Trip Smith, who was then uh, the owner or the the um, founder of a contract brewing brand uh, in, in, in Vale, McLaren Vale. Um, and you had a very, like, it was a very respectful, but, you know, very fulsome chat about the the, 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 the two different models. And I, um, but you said then, you know, if it didn't matter, people would put it on the label. Um, and it, and it, that's still a simpler statement that I can think of for why labeling matters. Yeah. And there wouldn't be a discussion around why they couldn't do it. Yeah. Because, you know, we all know the blindingly obvious. But, yeah, I, unfortunately, you know, I can't, I can't see that changing. Um, the, I've been in discussion with the, the IBA, a bit of a plug. We have our High Country Hop Festival coming up uh, at the start of April, end of March, and um, getting the IBA to come on board. And they're looking at – they've done some market research and they've probably engaged an agency to uh, – to come up with some better ways of communicating the indie seal, um, and they're they're you know going to be out there advocating for independence, and and I'm sure their research will, will would have told them things about transparency and um, all those things that we know about. So, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that the IBA will will continue to talk about independence and then um, you know back up backup statements of transparency and authenticity and honesty. You know, they're, they're, they're things that are really um, valuable to me, uh, but I think they are value, valuable in, in, in anything. I, I listen to a um, – I don't normally listen to podcasts, but I have to go to Melbourne for a meeting about uh, a new venture we have in Melbourne, East Brunswick Village uh, Brewery that we're setting up. Um, Warren Buffett – there was a podcast on Warren Buffett, and it was interesting listening to uh, – I, I had no idea who he is. He's, um, people probably know who he is and he's got a shitload of money. Um, but he was trading on honesty, integrity and authenticity. And at the start, it didn't do much for him. But by the end of his um, his empire building, it was uh, the reason that he ended up being successful. So it was interesting. I think it was called the Secret Source podcast for those. Okay. Who are interested. 
and it was secret source of Warren Buffett. Um, yeah, it got me uh, halfway down the Hume Freeway um, and halfway home. So anything that that nulls the uh, the boredom of that that drive. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, I think those values um, are intrinsic to our industry and to independence. So hopefully, I know you probably fight a lonely cause. Um, and, and and maybe get accused of, of poking the bear sometimes, but I, I do think it's valuable to talk about those things. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. But uh, you're, you're one of the you know, sort of talking about that, not um, sort of kissing ass or anything like that. But somebody asked me recently about the breweries that I respect for you know the, the way that they do things, and Bridge Road has always been a brand that hasn't just said what it is; it's actually you know walked the talk. Um, not just talked, and uh, you know, I congratulate you for that because uh, it, it, it's increasingly hard to do that as the um, industry becomes. You know, it, it, it's it's easy to become pragmatic in an industry that is increasingly business focused. Yeah, and you know, there are commercial realities in business too. Um, scaling up, continuing down our path, um, changing the way we do things. I think you know, for for myself and for my business, taking steps to continue to do the do the things we do, we'll always have decisions to make um, and always have to tread that line of how do we balance what our aspirations are, how we go about funding that, um, what we need to do from a business, from a um, compliance angle, uh, uh, you know, uh, employee care perspective, all those sorts of things always have to be balanced. Um, And I think it's it's important to have all those things in place, but also be open to change and 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 innovation in in whatever we're doing. So I think we'll we'll continue down that path of hey, if we have to make a decision, this is how we're going to do it, and let's talk about how we're going to do it and be open about how we're going to do it. Um, but when no no aims for contract brewing, <laughs> always changing. We just invested in um, purchasing our own site. So those who've been to Bridge Road Brewers probably don't know we we we'd never owned. Um, I started the business when I was 25 and didn't have any money, but I saved up a bit of money and I just spent um, more than I had on purchasing our site in Beechworth and the hotel in front of us. The Tangibles Hotel, uh, I believe it's called? Yeah, yeah, which is um, run independently from the brewery. They're a tenant of, uh, of Bridge Roads, I guess mm. now. Um, and we're also moving into uh, a brew pub model in Melbourne, which will be a really exciting phase for us. And we've just launched a, an employee share scheme that we're still nutting through the final um, details around how we issue shares and um, and make sure that our employees are part of our business, own our business, and uh, and feel genuinely rewarded uh, more so than just their their paycheck. I wasn't sure because there's a whole podcast potentially on employment share scheme. The one thing I will ask um, you is how does that work? when the only value that comes from a share scheme apart from feeling that you belong to something and you have an ownership in something but the real value comes if the business ever sells um, because that's how you um, you know get the liquidity event that makes those shares actually worth something so in comparison to taking your own money investing in shares i guess is the is, so and well it's a little bit like People who feel rich because their house is worth, you know, their house has gone up 100% over what it was two years ago and they feel rich, but it's still just a place that they live. And so they only have that money if the house sells. But but this idea that you have 
ownership in something only matters if you sell it. So having a share in Bridge Road Brewers, which is one of the fiercely independent brewers, how does that benefit them as opposed to being a notional owner of a business unless at some day Bridge Road's, you know, is, is this a warning sign that Bridge Road's may one day sell? It's, it's interesting ever, that I've been asked that question more than once because um, Stone and Wood had some sort of employee share program and, and then they sold and mm. um, New Belgium sold. But um, there's ESOPs all over the world um, outside of our industry that, that don't sell. Um, so the, the way in which, um, you know, and we sold, even though they didn't have to buy into it, we made a big effort in selling the um, employee share scheme to our employees because we're gifting them shares in the business. Mm. So it wasn't negotiated. We didn't say, oh, we're going to pay you less money and you can have yep. shares. We said, we're going to give you $5,000 worth of shares if you work for us for two years. And then there's opportunity to invest your bonus in it or take the cash. The way that they get returns on that is not if we sell the business. There's there's two ways. One's dividends. Um, okay. The way I, I get my, business, my money from the business, I get a wage that's probably less than, um, definitely less than, than some of our staff at the brewery um, probably the same I'm as putting my hand up to that as well <laughs> yeah. I, I get my I guess you know I, I was probably paid minimum wage for a decade myself and my partner um, paid more than minimum wage but still uh, not a huge wage and and dividends is where I'm able now to take some value out of the business only in the past three to five years I'd mm-hmm. probably say but really started looking at that as a way to you know try recruit some of my um my, my time invested in, in running a brewery for 16 years. Um, so there's dividends uh, for employee shareholders, ordinary shareholders. So if I decide to pay myself and Maria a dividend, then, then employees will get dividends too. And then the other for them, when they exit the business, um, they no longer are allowed to retain the share. So they have to sell them back to the business. So the model that we've put in place is to really you know, it's to give employees value and feel like they're an owner. But to, the way that valuation from an employee perspective is is looking at the profitability of the business. So if they can drive the business to be more profitable, their share value will increase. And how do you value the business in in, in that sense? Because that was a problem that Coopers ran into before the Lion takeover. That you know, how how do you value a business? Um, without having buyers out, it's just you know. We did the valuation and the employee share scheme with the um, with the accountant agency we used. Yep. Um, they d- developed a model that looked at um, profitability, um, and then some multipliers, some discounts because you can't sell the shares um, like you would with normal shares, um, and then came up with a number we were happy with for that valuation for the the value. It might be different if we if you're going to sell a business, you wouldn't value it necessarily that way particularly in the brewing industry at the moment when yep. you look at some of the way ways that they're valued but something that is concrete that that is transparent that the employees can see because we're reporting on our on our profitability each year and then you know it's something that hopefully motivates them to make the business a stronger business to be more profitable so the increase in profitability increases dividends and it also increases the value of your shares. So if you end up with $10,000 shares that have been issued over the years and we've modelled it out and the business continues to grow the way it has, I think we modelled it out at, you know, hey, in five years and you end up with $7,500 worth of shares or something or whatever it was, those shares based on the current growth should be worth $12,500 or $13,000. Right. 
Um, so when you decide that you don't want to work for us anymore, you know, and you're a good lever and we didn't have to throw you out because you were selling kegs for cash or something like that, um, then then the the company will purchase those shares back off you. Um, we will have a discussion if we want to make those shares, the values known, um, if we want to make those shares available to other employees in the business or if the company wants to buy them back so they're available for, for the incoming um, the incoming employee. Dividends and, and exiting the business. You answered one of the questions that I uh, wanted to dig into, so that's great. But uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a rabbit hole. What I did want to ask, though, was... You, you, you've talked about the um, the, the, the new Melbourne-based uh, venue, which is something that we have seen a number of uh, breweries do. You know, uh, Ballistic in Queensland has got a chain of venues in uh, southeast Queensland, uh, in, into central Queensland. Um, down your way, Stomping Ground has done multiple venues. Is that increasingly becoming a business imperative where, you know, it gives you access to a wider market without having to rely on, you know, keg sales to you know venues and you get to control your own hospitality experience and sell your own beer um or you know, what what is the business imperative that sees bridge road go out of bridge road i think it's twofold from that perspective so it's it's probably a reaction to localism would be the one of the strongest arguments it's something that we've been looking at doing for more than 10 years you know constantly when i ride my bike around or jog around which is always when i go somewhere i'm always seeing sites and thinking gee that'd be good but capital's always the you know capital and uh, and also time and energy um it's not just the money you need to, you need to be able to make things happen and, and do them well so that side as well um so it's something i've been thinking about forever the, the the model that i think of that probably inspired it was sprig and fern in in nelson in new zealand mm-hmm. and i'm going to say over 10 years ago when i visited there that they had had I really like the way New Zealand did craft beer in that it wasn't as uh, there wasn't as big of a barrier and it wasn't perhaps as snobbish as Australian craft beer. It was there for everyone. You know, the rugby club 12 years ago, the local rugby club drunk the local pale ale or mm-hmm. IPA. Um, the local footy club here is probably still hard argument to get them drinking anything other than, you know, we do have really good supporters from um, the footy club, but but I would say they would sell you know ten times as much Carlton Cold as they would yep. Beechworth Pale Ale, probably a hundred times more. Um, but those guys support the club and, and we support them. But I saw craft beer being um, approached differently in uh, New Zealand, and I really like the model the Sprig and Fern had in one city. I think they had, which was Nelson, not even a it's it's small when you say city. Um, I think they had three or four venues in mm-hmm. that place, suburbs, so people didn't have to travel across suburbs; they could have a local version of. The Sprig and Fern in their end of town. Um, and I really like that model. And then that, you know, the twofold thing that I was getting at is being local in a in a larger population base. One of the biggest challenges Bridge Road Brewers has to growth is is our small population base. So if we use that um, in terms of the exposure we have to customers, we only are exposed to those that we distribute to or more importantly, they get to visit us and there's only a finite number of people who can come to Beechworth and experience the brewery and there's only a finite number of people who do come to Beechworth and and, and experience the, the brewery. So um, when we talk about being competitive in, in fl- far-flung markets, Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere else, um, there's a brewery that's been opened in a suburb that, you know, or that has a surrounding population of over a million people in the same circle in around Beechworth, we might have 10,000 people. So how do we, um, you know, be relevant in that market where we're unknown? 
And I think that's a driving factor for some of these um, satellite venues is mm. that um, ability to to be local and be part of a community and build the brand as a national brand on the back of it, which is why let's talk about bigger brands having um, venues, which is why I believe big brands do it because big beer brands, you know, hospitality isn't their thing. They learned that lesson when they tried to buy pubs a long time ago um, and then sold them all again. But I think um, we see it with big wineries too. Why do they have a cellar door? It's that consumer reach mm. and consumer facing and consumer experience, um, you know, and why are these, why are bigger brands looking to have venues in some of the key locations of it around Australia? It's all about that exposure and brand building. And also the feeling of being local when you're not, like for some of those big brands, it's the feeling of being local when the business may be not as easily put into that local box or that, you know, small box. Yeah. So how does that then work for Bridge Road, you know, Beechworth Pale Ale made in Melbourne? Um, how, you know, how does local go in, in, in that nuance? Will be made in Beechworth. Okay. Our core range comes out of Beechworth. It's not a, it's not a production site. It's a site that hopefully produces its own beer. So, you know, there, there's an easy option there to say we're not going to put a brewery in this venue. It'll just be a tap room and venue. Yep. And the harder decision is, uh, is me saying, well, actually, I, I, you know, I, I feel that if this venue is going to be successful, it has to produce beer of its own, um, and and be its own thing. Um, so it's not a it's not a carbon copy of Bridge Road Brewers in Beechworth. And we definitely will have Beechworth Pale Ale as the leading product. In that in that venue from Beechworth, but we will most likely have a core beer that is always available in that venue that belongs to that venue, yep. made at that venue, and then we'll have a whole range of uh, sixteen other hazy IPAs, <laughs> no, a whole range of limited <laughs> release beers. You know, you I, I genuinely feel people people want to have something unique to to a site and, and and have some ownership and understanding of where things are made we talked that about that before um, and for a venue to be really su- successful in a competitive market then you have to be authentic and you have to be the real deal and if you brew the beer there then you are so you know Oh, well, good luck with that. Now, I'm very conscious of the time <laughs> both for the, for you and the listener. Um, so we are coming up to Hottest 100 this Saturday. By the time this goes to air, we'll know the results, but I, I don't yet. Everyone seems to think that we do. Someone said to me, do you think Matt will tell you the results? And I said, even if he didn't, he wouldn't tell us. Look, it's one of the things that we'll, we'll wait and see what uh, where the dice fall on, on Saturday, but it'd be certainly something we would have a chat to you. But is it something that a top 10 finish has a significant business dividend? I would say a top three Top three, okay. Significant, but you take what you take from it from whatever you can. You know, we see beach. We've always wanted to be the number one rated pale ale in Australia. It seemed to just fall short here and there for different reasons. Um, there's a couple other beers that have pipped us a couple of times because it's nice to be able to say, "Hey, we're the number one rated yep. pale ale in the country." Because the beers in the top three aren't pale ales. Um, there's XPA, um, Pacific Ale, and and an IPA from Canberra. Um, maybe the two and three will shuffle this year. I don't see number one changing. That's a pretty uh, sure bet. Do people punt on this? I hope they don't. Um, there, there was last year, but it's like it's it's such a small pool. Yeah, uh, and and definitely we've been you know given all the breweries in Victoria, we've been Australia uh, Victoria's number one voted craft beer for a number of years, and we do trade off that. Yep. letting people know it. 
because um, we're from a tiny little town and we don't make that much beer and we do punch above our weight. So um, we do we do use it to trade off and, and I do think it has value. Um, and we do invest time and, and some dollars into into reminding people to, to vote for us. All the very best uh, for, for whatever comes on Saturday. We will uh, be looking to we'll, – I'll have your number on the speed dial if we do need to call. Um, and otherwise, uh, mate, thank you. It's been a great – as always, it's been a great chat uh, and, and we're always pleased to have you on the, on the podcast. Cheers, Matt. Thanks for the chat. And that was Ben Krause. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search for Radio Brews News in Facebook and use the password Soapbox. That way we know where you came from. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show or if you're a brewery, subscribe to the website. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Now, here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer's like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous, you know, it's got bitter and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the, the whiskey is kind of like a, a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me, you have the prism and the, the beer shines through it. But what, the, what it does by adding extra brightness, uh, lift, and alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out. And then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Port is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the, of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those, each of those components. That's the magic of this, this whiskey um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for 15 plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does everything that you would expect a whiskey to do, but in a completely different way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like it's exhilarating. It's exciting like no other whiskey. Yeah, well, it's probably well, it's my favourite whiskey to make every year because of that. So as a distiller with 15 years experience, what has Chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer? Yeah, probably that I'm a bit dumb. So I've, I started off and was like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. There's no chance that I'll, you know, this whole thing. I was so sceptical. And then we went through sort of one. So we sort of take different casks that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like, what does it taste? Like, oh, it doesn't taste very good. And we did that about seventh time, where it was actually the very last whiskey um, sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casks have that we tried that it was like, oh, wow, that's like incredible. 
we have to do this. And at that point, I don't even think I'd spoken to Scotty. I think um, one of my outsiders, Johnny, had been speaking to, to Scotty about it. And I called Scotty. I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about, at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour, um, but do it in a slightly different way. So if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey? You know, Wolf Number 1 was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf Number 2 was um, trying to provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the, the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about excess absolutely there should be too much of everything going on all of the time and was just this outrageous over the top thing the wolf number four which is my favorite it's actually my favorite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years so of you know 500,000 whiskies that i've blended um that's my number one i've got three bottles at home and they seem to go it used to be four bottles so it's probably a, it's probably a pretty good sign wolf number four was to me just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer and just it was just a little piece of um exhilaration it's just every time i try it i just can't believe how much is going on in that uh how easily you can see every component of the beer but also the whiskey but it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience i suppose the next flavor and then this year this year is the one with the most beer in it so usually what would happen is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out. But we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year, the, the beer sits as this kind of solid block within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way, which is, which is really magical. And then if you add water to the whiskey, which sort of changes the surface tension, then it just erupts and launches out, which is just, yeah, there's no whiskey like it on the planet. And it's just, as you can tell, I get pretty excited. Finally, with so much detail already provided, I asked Chris just how this whiskey is made. In terms of making this thing, there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through. So. We send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, uh, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships and it's just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Sebelsfield Winery and mostly the wood for those will be at least 100 years old. So they would have held wine in it and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for, you know, 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But, yeah, generally generally around 100-year-old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey, then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne to, um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty. Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskies, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue because if, if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and sh ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidisation, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being, 
you know, 60 plus percent is it freezes that, that process. It freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so, yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up. So we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be. And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to, to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels and within 20 seconds of that barrel being emptied, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, and so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is pain in the ass, to be honest, but it's, a, it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good. So that's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5 launching on August 8 this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows. 